This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. This is Season 6 of Office Hours, and our theme is To Know Wisdom. And that theme appears in some unlikely places, or perhaps not, as we'll see in this episode. One of which is the story of Samson in Judges 13. Here to help us make connections is Bob Godfrey, President and Professor of Church History at Westminster Seminary, California. He is author of several books, including John Calvin, Pilgrim, and Pastor. This and other faculty titles is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Bob is also the longtime teacher of the adult Sunday school class at the Escondido United Reformed Church. Last year and this year, he's been looking at judges where wisdom and foolishness arguably play a significant role in the story. Hi, Bob. Welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Good to be with you, I think. All right. Well, before we dive into Judges 13 and the relationship between Samson and wisdom, just to get the listener oriented, when you say wisdom, what do you mean? Well, I think, um, as we'll be looking at the faculty conference, uh, you look at wisdom from two sides. You certainly, on the one side, have God's wisdom and Christ's wisdom, the wisdom of the scriptures, which obviously is always a perfect and appropriate wisdom. And then on the other side, you have references to human wisdom, which is much more proximate and not infallible or inevitably reliable. On the human side, it seems to me, wisdom is the effort to take the truths that God has revealed and apply them to human experience and reality. And um, what the scriptures show us in part in their histories is where human beings show themselves to have in fact been wise in the decisions that they make in applying law to experience and where they have been exceedingly foolish, often in neglecting to think about the law at all. And ultimately, wisdom begins with the fear of God. Right. Uh, Wisdom is the fear of God. And as uh, Deuteronomy 4 says, wisdom is the law of God. I mean, those things are both foundational to wise human decisions. So, we can distinguish between proximate wisdom, which is the word you used, and ultimate wisdom. And we don't want to separate, although we may distinguish, between wisdom and law. There are objective, divinely revealed, fixed moral norms rooted in the nature and character of God as he reveals himself to us that we have to make use of as we try to seek to learn to be wise. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And yet there are some subjective elements, right? Scripture says, uh, you know, answer a fool according to his folly or don't answer a fool according to his folly. So there's not And a- you need wisdom to decide which of those scriptures to apply when. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right. And, and so, uh, prayer would be an essential part of wisdom. We need to be praying as we read Scripture. We need to be asking the Lord to illumine the Scripture and help us understand it, and to help us understand ourselves and our situation and the needs of the person, perhaps, with whom we're speaking or working. Right. I mean, the classic example that often comes to mind is the young person trying to find a spouse, and you need wisdom for that. And wisdom, certainly, in the first place, will look to the law of God. A potential spouse has to be a believer, according to the law of God. But then the Bible doesn't give a list of names for us to circle one. Uh, we have to be— <laughs> Life would be so much simpler, yes. It would be. Although it'd be. And marriage so much more successful, I think. But yeah, um, it, Of course, it would make the Bible 
a much larger book. A much larger book and the need for a much larger concordance. Yeah. I might even have to <laughs> learn how to use a computer instead of pulling out my old paper concordance. So it really is an essential virtue that Christians need to cultivate because, you know, we laugh, but making that decision, whom to marry, when to marry, you know, that's a, an enormously important and life-changing decision. And to make that decision on the basis of a foolish premise or assumption or conviction could be damaging not only to one's own self, but also to one's spouse and children, and it might reverberate through generations. Absolutely, absolutely. And it illustrates for us that the effort to apply wisdom to human problems is unavoidable if we're going to live and make decisions, is vitally important, and uh, no one is going to be able to guarantee that we are ultimately actually being wise. Prayer won't guarantee it. It will help. And people prayerfully make wrong decisions. They do. And foolish decisions. Right. And it, it also reminds us that it's not a purely individualistic process, that we need the advice of sound Christian people to help us with their wisdom to uh, move towards our wisdom. That's one of the problems with Samson. You probably forgot we were going to talk about Samson. <laughs> Samson comes through the scriptures as a rugged individualist. He never takes good advice from anyone. All right. So, there's a, an important sense in which Samson is an outstanding negative example. In other words, rather than being a clear example of wisdom, in many respects, he's a clear example of the antithesis or foolishness. Exactly. Exactly. Well, why did you decide to do this series on Samson? I think historians probably by nature are just drawn to fools. Um, well, we do spend a fair bit of time <laughs> you, reading you about them. You find so many of them in history. Actually, my attraction to Samson was of a peculiar origin. I thought I knew something about the story of Samson, and when I actually plunged into it for the sake of my Sunday school class, uh, I discovered I really knew much less about Samson than I thought I did. But the whole process began with my going to the opera and seeing Samson's Samson and Delilah, and uh, in the opera notes, there was an article written by one of the leading rabbis of San Diego who commented that Samson, Samson's story from the book of Judges is not used in any synagogue service, either on the regular Sabbath services or any of the holidays. And his basic conclusion was because Samson is not an admirable man. And I suddenly thought, as I read that, here is an intriguing difference between rabbinic religion that looks at Samson and sees sinner. And apostolic religion, as we find it in Hebrews 11, that looks at Samson and says, man saved by faith. And that's what sort of drew me to Samson. And grace, too. I mean, absolutely. Samson is the object of truly undeserved divine favor. Right. And the rabbi doesn't seem maybe to have a very clear grasp of that. Yeah. I don't know if you know this, but whenever I say someone has faith, I assume that is mutually agreed among us that that's a <laughs> gift of grace. But it's good to point that out to people. Well, and it's true. I and mean, you know, we have friends who would remind us that even as we say faith and grace, we need to add the essential qualifier, right? Only just because of all the confusion that has reigned for. Well, maybe always, but particularly for the last Absolutely. 30. But, you know, it seems to me that when you look particularly at that summary conclusion in Hebrews 11, the whole point there is not only that these people were saved by faith alone, because of grace alone, but that there would have been no other option for them to be saved, that these are not really very admirable people. They are people who in the case of, say, Gideon and Jephthah, are at least guilty of one or two seriously foolish actions, or in the case of Samson, a whole life almost of foolishness. 
You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Give us a precy of the Samson story and its setting. You've already touched on it a little bit. Well, the critical thing about Samson is that he's the last judge mentioned in the book of Judges. And even though there's almost 25% of the book recording Israel's history after the Samson story, which we have Judges 13 through 16, he is the last one identified as a judge in the book. By my counting, and not everyone has agreed about this, but I'm right. Um, <laughs> by my counting, there are 12 judges in the book. And so there's, a, I think, an intentional paralleling of the history of the judges with the history of the patriarchs, the history of the tribes of Israel. In any case, what you see is Israel, after the death of Joshua, needing a leader, and in the absence of a leader, watching its faithfulness unravel, and that God then raises up local leaders. Uh, None of the judges ever rule over all of Israel the way uh, Joshua or Moses led all of Israel, but they are kind of stopgap measures to uh, lead Israel into faithfulness. They're called deliverers. They're not judges in the way we think of a judge sitting on a bench making a decision. They are leaders uh, making decisions, but decisions to try to rescue Israel from its sin and its enemies and to lead them in the ways of righteousness. And those judges begin being described very positively. Othniel, Ehud, Deborah are judges presented really as not having failings. This is not to say, of course, they were sinlessly perfect, but they are presented as faithful, wise leaders of the people. They are not fools in what they do. But then when you get to Gideon, you begin to see a judge who in many ways is faithful, but in other ways is foolish in his fearfulness in his service of the Lord, and then ends rather badly with um, slipping towards idolatry with this matter of the ephod. So, you see a kind of turning point with uh, Gideon, and then you see a serious decline in the judges. And Samson represents the nadir of where the judges are. Samson is presented never as really leading Israel. He just is a judge who functions on his own. And um, despite the huge blessings of the Lord that are provided him with commission before his birth, with being strengthened by the Spirit as a very young man, by having what appear to be fairly godly parents, Right from the beginning, he makes one foolish choice after another and shows how not only Israel has become foolish in its life before the Lord, but now even the judge who has been instituted to try to lead them has become foolish. Of course, the big picture of the book of Judges really is to say Israel needs a king. And that's what the last part of the book of Judges makes explicit. The problem in Israel, everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king. And this is looking forward to the coming of David and great David's greater son, ultimately. Samson, as an individual, was a special child, and he was set apart in a remarkable way in Judges 13, verses 17 and 21, and it would seem as if he was specially gifted by the Spirit in verses 13, 24, and 14, 5, and yet, as you've already indicated, he didn't always reflect that giftedness. And so, it seems as if it's possible for Samson anyway, not to draw broader conclusions necessarily, but to have the Spirit in this special way, this giftedness, and yet to be, as you've said, truly foolish. How do you relate those things? Well, just looking at that introduction, one of the striking things about Judges 13 and the revelation of the angel of the Lord to his parents is that what Samson is to be is to be separate. He's to be separated in holiness and consecration 
to the Lord. There's nothing about strength being given to Samson. That's what we tend to think about when we think about Samson. Oh, he's the strong guy in the Old Testament. Strength is incidental, really, in the Samson story to what he was called to be. But what we see is, despite that clear commissioning from the angel of the Lord, a story that his parents must have told him over and over again in his young years, we all know how parents are repeating family history ad nauseum, despite that, and despite being filled with the Holy Spirit, Samson really very largely goes his own way. What is curious, what is intriguing in this story is that God does not give up on Samson. God allows Samson to uh, wander into very unseemly paths to the point that reading the story of Samson, you think, would I want to read this at home at the <laughs> dinner table with small children? I mean, well, I mean, this is an issue with scripture. It is so relentlessly and brutally often realistic. Right. That exactly. It shocks our sensibilities, and I think intentionally so, don't you? Absolutely. Um, so, that what you see is in Samson, uh, someone who has over and over again ignored the law of God, over and over again has just served what is pleasing to his own eyes. He's lived by sight and not by faith. And, of course, that's the essence of his foolishness, that he allows himself to live by his eyesight and not by faith. Particularly, he lives by seeing beautiful women and violating the law of God with them, whether it's by marrying a Philistine woman who does not share anything of the religion of Israel, or seeing a prostitute and going into her, or taking up with Delilah. These are all pointing, I think, in part to the spiritual idolatry of Israel. Which connects back to our earlier discussion about wisdom and making decisions about marriage, for example. Right, right. You know, we want to be careful about how we use examples. Nevertheless, Scripture does say that all these things are set down in Scripture, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, as examples right. for us. Right. And so, while we don't want to read these stories figuratively so as to ask, for example, who are the Delilahs in your life? Right. On the other hand, Samson does stand as a stark warning of entering into marriage or other kinds of intimate unions between believers and unbelievers. Right. And, you know, Judges 14, verse 3, we read, But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Uh, here are parents who are aware of the obligation to marry someone other than an idolater. And, um, yeah, I don't think it's a moralism to say that applies always because Paul says it in his letter to the Corinthians, too. So uh, here is a kind of universal moral moral point that's being acted out here among Samson, and we see the disaster that comes out of his unwillingness to listen to his parents. It's critical to get the gospel right because it is the good news of the work of Jesus Christ that is saving. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. Uh, we need the whole Bible. We need the whole message of the Bible. We need the help of the law. We need the crushing work of the law. We must never undervalue or underestimate the importance of the law. But it is what Christ did that is saving. And what by trusting in what Christ did, uh, we are saved. It is by receiving the gospel in faith that we're justified and all the other benefits and fruits of Christ's work flow out of that. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. 
And when the parents say uncircumcised, we need to resist the temptation that might arise to say, well, the parents are just dividing the world into our people and other people who are not like us. That's not really what's going on there. Uncircumcised is an important category, right? God had said to Abraham, this is my covenant in your flesh, and you will cut off the foreskin from your son on the eighth day or by the eighth day, and to fail to do this is to break covenant with God. And that's a very serious thing. Walk us through just for a minute the significance of the act of circumcision. Well, the act of circumcision was, as the Hebrew literally says, to cut a covenant. It was to mark in blood, the covenant that God had given to his people, in which God is basically saying, if you violate my covenant made now in the blood of your foreskin, there will be no successive generations for you. You will be cut off. And interestingly enough, that's exactly what happens to Samson. Although he dies in faith, he dies without descendants. So, that we're seeing that kind of seriousness of covenant outcomes taking place here. And as I got into the Samson story, part of what intrigued me is how really carefully crafted this is. There's hardly a wasted word here. And so, when they're holding the wedding feast and Samson has put a riddle that becomes increasingly a source of tension, his wife, Judges 14 verse 16, wept over him and said, you only hate me, you do not love me, you have put a riddle to my people. Uh, She hasn't identified with Israel. This is no Ruth who leaves her people behind and identifies with Israel and its God. She is still a Philistine. You know, most likely as you read this story, she thinks she's done Israel a favor. She thinks she's done Samson a favor. Uh, She's somebody of importance because she's a Philistine and she's marrying this sort of slave people. So, it reinforces all that his parents had warned him about. So that uh, this business of making a marriage, which is a union, is a, in a sense a false union because they're not really united spiritually. They're not confessing the same God. They're not looking forward to the same Messiah. So the, and I guess I'm, I'm laboring over this because I am sure there is a listener saying, well, you know, that was then, this is now, Christianity is a religion of love, and I know this person, and I love this person, I know this person loves me. Yes, we don't share the same faith, but there's no reason why that should keep us apart. And so, I want the the listener to understand that it's not prejudice. It's a matter of recognizing genuine spiritual realities and then acting wisely in light of that. Right. And what Judges 14 and 15 are really all about is the disastrous outcome of this foolish decision. And it's not just Samson who's presented as a fool here. In a sense, his father is also a fool. Although the father initially gives good advice, when the good advice is rejected, the father still facilitates the wedding taking place. And so, he hasn't stood adamantly for the law of God. He hasn't refused to cooperate in the foolishness of his son's decision, but he goes along. Okay, eventually. So, family blood ends up trumping the Lord's covenant and his commandment. Right. Which happens still today, right? Uh, I mean, how often is it the case that a child will do or say something, uh, you know, adopt a position or commit some sin, and then a parent will say, well, the week before that happens, the parent is against it. The week after it happens, the parent is for it. So, we all face these sorts of crises where we're going to have to choose this day whom we will serve. Exactly even at the cost of potentially being alienated from family. And Jesus did say something about that. Absolutely. Now, several attempts were made in the narrative to capture Samson, and they all failed. 
and they failed because of his enormous right. strength, supernatural strength. Absolutely. Except for one. So what happened? Well, as I read this story, it's very interesting. I think Judges 13, 14, and 15 are all just leading up to Samson becoming a judge. And then we have one very brief incident of him actually acting as judge, and that's the first three verses of chapter 16 when he goes to Gaza and consorts with a prostitute there, and then they try to capture him and he carries off the gates of the city. And then we move from verse 4 of chapter 16 into the Delilah story, which is really the end of the life of Samson. So, we have the beginning and the end and just this minuscule snapshot of Samson as judge in the middle. So, he's judged for 20 years and we know almost nothing about what he does for 20 years. Except he consorted with prostitutes. Right. So, it's a very mixed story. It It is. I mean, that that story is probably the most embarrassing to read to the kids. Um, And he's not heroic in that sense. He may be heroic in his acts of strength, which are... you know, you and I are old enough to remember uh, Victor Mature yes. playing Samson. Yes. And so, as a boy, you know, I knew there was a Samson story, and I knew he was in the Bible, and I knew he was a strong fellow and a hero. And he went all around with his shirt off. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> and so, as you say, the story changes pretty dramatically, I suppose. Is that a fair way to put it? Well, I think you see that the Lord uses Samson, the Lord perseveres with Samson, and then Delilah comes along, and the corruption of Samson, the foolishness of Samson is intensified in the story, because now now he's not just following what his eyes see instead of what he ought to believe and hear from the law of God. Now he's giving his heart to Delilah. That's what comes through in this story. He's not just desiring her with his eyes, which seems to have driven him earlier in the story. Now he's giving his heart to Delilah. And the language that is used in chapter 16 for his love for Delilah is exactly the same language that's used in Deuteronomy 16 about how we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart. But now, he's loving Delilah with his heart. And um, the irony, again, in this story is so clear because despite the movies and the operas, there is no evidence that Delilah loves Samson. She is in it for the money. They have offered her a huge amount of money. And the other thing that's important in this story is the minute she gets the secret out of Samson, she disappears from the story. There's no evidence she's in the temple when it's pulled down. She doesn't care enough about him You mean the movies didn't tell the truth about Samson and Delilah? You know, I hate to disillusion your your boyhood, uh, but yes, they did not tell the truth. Uh, At least there's no evidence that she was there. She took the money and ran. This is part of the tragedy and the foolishness of this event. He's given his heart away to someone who couldn't care less about him. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Ultimately, she didn't share his faith. She didn't love his God. She loved something else. She loved money. And he gave his heart to someone who couldn't and wouldn't give her heart to him. So, they weren't ever really united. And, and of course, the irony of the story is that when the Philistines capture him, what is the first thing that they do? They blind him, which is, in a sense, a favor because he's been led astray by his eyes through his whole life. And now he's blinded, turned into a dumb ox to grind at a millstone. And it's in that situation where 
faith revives in him. Faith is strengthened in him. He turns again to the Lord, and the closing prayer may strike us as strange initially. Uh, it seems to be a prayer for vengeance, but what it really is is a prayer for vindication. O oh Lord, strengthen me one last time that it may be displayed amongst the nations that I was your servant, that I was your judge, that I wasn't a perfect person by any means, but I did serve you. And the Lord answers that prayer because... So that's a righteous prayer. It is. He does fulfill an official function. So in that way, he's like David. He's not a king, but he does have this important office in Israel. And in that sense, as a public official, he does represent Yahweh and he represents the honor of the Lord. Absolutely. And the very end of the story, which is the kind of thing often we rush past, the last verse of chapter 16, then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. It's very important. He is not left to be buried amongst the Philistines. He is brought back to the land of promise and buried amongst the fathers, as Calvin would have said, in the hope of the resurrection. Hmm. Um, and properly so. Truth. Absolutely. And because the believers before the incarnation of our Lord did look forward to real spiritual realities that we see more clearly than they, but nevertheless, they really did. It's not the case, as maybe the listener has heard in university, that all the Jews thought that, you know, at death, they went down to the earth and that was the end of them, that they were annihilationists or something. Uh, That's not true. The scriptures testify repeatedly that the believers were looking forward to a city whose builder and maker is God. Abraham was looking forward to the bodily resurrection, which is why he took his son up the mountain. So we can expect that because Samson was a believer, he too was looking forward to the city. And then he comes up in Hebrews chapter 11, right? As one of the examples of those who live by faith. And that's what we see. You know, at the end of his life, he doesn't pray that his eyesight will be restored. He doesn't pray that he'll be freed. He doesn't pray that he'll be restored to his leadership in Israel. He prays simply that he'll be vindicated in his death as a servant of the Lord, and the Lord grants that prayer. So, he dies blind, but seeing by faith more clearly than he did through most of his life. At the end of his life, he realizes it's not about me. Right. All his life had been about himself, uh, gaining pleasure, uh, power, you know, having fun with the riddles, teasing you know, the various people who were trying to gain his power, toying with Delilah until ultimately he breaks his vow, mm-hmm. reveals the, mm-hmm. the source of his strength, loses it all, but then finally regains it. You passed over briefly how he regained his strength. How do you understand that sort of re-strengthening of him by the Lord? Well, I think throughout the Judges, you see these references to the Spirit of the Lord coming upon them. And uh, I don't think we should see that primarily in terms of regeneration, although I believe they were regenerated by the Spirit of the Lord. But this is a coming of the Spirit in power, something like what we see in the extraordinary works of the Spirit in the apostolic foundational age of the church. And so, I think the Spirit comes back in that kind of power to empower Samson to do what clearly is a supernatural act. Pulling down this temple is not something that even the strongest of men naturally could do. This is another supernatural act on his part. So, this is a miracle, and this is something that Christians are meant to believe. Right. Uh, So, we need to resist the temptation to sort of turn this into a, a myth or a saga. We're meant to accept this as real, true, actual history of God's work amongst his people leading up to the coming of Christ. Exactly. Exactly. How does Samson point us to Christ? Well, again, I think Samson points us in many ways negatively 
towards Christ. Samson ultimately is the nadir of the judges because he is so self-indulgent, so selfish, so focused on himself, so removed from the law of God. And of course, one of the things that Israel had been told was that when they had a king, the king needed to keep a copy of the law next to him, read it faithfully, and follow it, Deuteronomy 17. And um, that was to be the ideal. Clearly, Samson failed utterly in that regard. But of course, the Davidic kingship would also fail, and uh, David didn't always do so well with his eyes. And all of that (laughs) points forward to the great king that had to come, the divine king, who would fulfill all the hopes and aspirations and all the law of Israel. But God was gracious to Samson. And he's, he great, and he's gracious to us. Right. And, it, you know, it's, it's a very important encouragement that it is not, uh, I mean, the encouragement of this uh, passage is, is not live the way you want to and repent at the end of your life. The encouragement of this passage is that despite all of the horrors that Samson brings on himself by his foolishness, uh, God does not abandon his own. And um, that's always an encouragement to God's people. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.